Thank you for listening to audio content from South Cities Church in Lakeville, Minnesota. For more information or resources, visit us online at southcities.church. Let's pray. God, be gracious to us as we hear your word and heed it and seek in what seems like a chapter that's going to other places, kind of a, a chapter in the middle of a journey to see what you have for us. I pray for those that are trusting in you by faith that you would help them, help us to continue to trust you. For those that have not yet trusted to embrace you by faith for the first time in this text. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I'm told that there are two kinds of people in the world. People that enjoy a good road trip and then people that just enjoy getting on a plane and getting there quick. Which side are, which one? Are any road trip people here? Got any, okay. Any flyers here you prefer to fly? Road trip people seem to be winning out today. Uh, I grew up, uh, well, grew up kind of in the Air Force and so we moved around a bunch. For a period of time, we lived outside San Francisco on a military base, and I did not go back to California for almost 30 years, or a little over 30 years, until this last uh, couple of years. I went out to San Diego for a conference, and Natalie and I got away. And when I got up really high and was flying, you look down and you see what's commonly called flyover country, okay, which... I guess when you actually get down there on the ground, it's not so flyover. It's actually really interesting. But a lot of people think of it as just, this is something that you kind of go through on your way to something else. In our text today, Genesis 43 might kind of feel like a text that you just go through on your way to something else. Start at the beginning of Genesis, get through Genesis 1 to 3, and then jump to the good stuff in Genesis 49. Or if you're in Revelation, get through the good stuff in one through five and then jump to the last couple chapters without going through all of the details. If you're visiting with us today, we're on a road trip through Genesis and we're seeing glorious things as we stop and say, what's this landmark? What's this interesting thing over here? And today, we're gonna see again that God's good grace, when seen up close, has all kinds of stuff for us to learn and to live. The first question this text and our texts in Genesis have been posing to us, how do we get to a redeemer, a seed who will crush the head of a snake and restore what was lost at the fall in Genesis 3? How will we be God's people in his place, in his presence, the second question is, how do we actually change? Is it possible to change? Is it possible for people that are one way and want to be another way to live differently to actually change? We tackled that question the last time we looked up close at Judah in chapter 38. And we're going to see that Judah continues his journey of change today. And then last, particular to this text, we see this question. What do you do when you're at the end of yourself? When everything around you, when your circumstances seem to narrow in, 
and you become hopeless. Is there still hope? When you get a phone call after an appointment and what feels like a midlife crisis becomes an end-of-life crisis. When you see someone die, someone close to you passes away, and somebody that you've loved dearly and invested in begins to despair of life itself. When your life that you desired and planned for is dashed on the rocks of failure and disappointment. Today in our text, we're gonna see all of these questions in the lives of three men, three kind of disparate journeys whose lives are intertwined once again. And we're gonna see a provident God, a good God, a powerful God working, even though it looks like failure and disappointment are their fate. So you've gotta remember, Jacob, second-born son, harried, disappointed, Life's not exactly what he thought it would look like. Here he is, a deceptive, unfaithful man, embracing the God of his fathers. We've seen a favored son, Joseph, with all of his brothers jealous of him and then rejected, resented, ultimately sold into slavery. And then we've seen God's grace embrace this guy, Judah, and change him this embittered older brother. So we see in the various trials of the patriarchs, we're going to see how does God's providence play out. And then we have to ask the question, is this just kind of unique God time? Like, is this the special way that God works in some people's lives, but not in others? Does this same God work this same way in our lives? When we consider how far we've come, what kind of regrets we live with, where we've become embittered by our own sin or someone else's sin or just the general suffering of being in our world, is God still active? Is he still doing something? Is he still good? Is he still powerful? In our text today, these questions come to confront us and then change us. Let's pray one more time. We're going to dive into the text. So God, work through your word to guide us today and point most clearly past this text to Jesus. And in the lives of Jacob and Judah, Joseph, help us to see ourselves. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So first point in chapter 43, and I hope you've got a Bible open. So if you've got the Pew Bible that's in front of you, Genesis 43 is on page 34, or feel free to scroll there on your phone or if you brought your own Bible. Kids, uh, we're so glad you're here today too for a sermon. Uh, Grab a Bible in front of you or saddle up next to your parents' Bible and read along. We're gonna be spending a lot of time looking intently like a road trip at various things on on our journey. So first point Chapter 43, verses 1 through 10, Judah makes a redemptive plan. Now the famine was severe in the land, and when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, the man solemnly warned us, saying, you will not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food, but if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you will not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel said, 
Why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man you had another brother? They replied, the man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, is your father alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was an answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, bring your brother down? And Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand, you shall require him. If I don't If I don't bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. So Jacob realizes they need food. They're starving, but he's either forgotten the stipulations of how it would be that their brothers would return, the brothers would return to Egypt, or he just wants them to try anyways. Remember from the last chapter, the text that Nathan preached on last week, Simeon, one of their brothers, is bound in Egypt, really a hostage, and If it were kind of like, happy Father's Day, Jacob, you're going to lose another child, might be how it feels to him. Simeon, Joseph are either dead or as good as dead in Jacob's mind. And I will not dare give up the child of my old age, Benjamin, the son of favored wife, Rachel. Now we have to remember the background here, right? This was an edition of Family Feud, and Steve Harvey came out and said, oh, survey says, you know, who's the favorite wife of Jacob? You know, and somebody slaps him, bum, 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 Bilha. Eh. No, nobody is deceived in this moment about what's actually going on. Jacob has his favorites. His favorites are Rachel and her two kids, Joseph and Benjamin, and everything else kind of orbits around that. How hardened Leah's, Bilhah's, and Zilpah's children probably are, they realize that they're second best in their dad's eyes. But this is the context of redemption throughout the Bible. God works and even has his eye most directly on what we see as second, third, fourth best. Failure, disappointment, and yes, sin and suffering are the platform on which God's grace shines most brightly. Are we okay with that? Are you okay that God doesn't use what we see as most successful and best, but he works with second-born He works with fourth born. He works with second favored. He works with the least of these. Does God use the situations we find ourselves in, the circumstances, our backgrounds, even the backgrounds of those who came before us? My brain kind of short circuits because in my life and the lives of those who came before me, there's some really hard stories and really hard things that have happened the text is implicitly asking what's going to be explicit later in the book. Is God good and powerful even when suffering is real and hard? Or another way to say it, is what man means for evil the end of the story? Or is there more to the story than that? And then we see in the midst of this 
what happens. Judah doubles down on this plan to return. Remember from last chapter, Reuben, the firstborn, who seems to always be striving to get back in his dad's favor, he, he says, kill my two kids if I don't come back with Simeon and with Benjamin. Perhaps uh, like you've lost two kids, dad. You can have me lose two kids, whatever that means exactly. Then we see now Judah is willing to offer up himself. And this is a deep turn from what we've seen earlier in Genesis. Do you remember chapter 37? What Judah wanted to do? He's the one that came up with the plan. Sell Joseph into slavery. And now, after chapter 38 and the confrontation with Tamar, where his own sin gets like put right in his face, now he's willing to say, I- I'll be the one. I'll go in Benjamin's place. It's a complete turnaround in the course of perhaps 15 or 20 years. What has happened with Judah, fourth born of the second favored wife, shot through with passion and sin, God is working to redeem him and make him one through whom redemption will be worked. Remember what Reuben said in chapter 42? You're right there in Genesis 43. Just look back at chapter 42, verses 21 and 22. Just a couple things he says here. There needs to be a payment for Joseph's life. Then they said to one another, the brothers do, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother. And then we saw the distress of his soul and he begged us. We didn't listen. That's why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, didn't I tell you? Do not sin against the boy, but you didn't listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. The idea of a reckoning or payment is hearkening back a relatively rare word in Genesis to what God says in Genesis 9, 5 through 6. Kind of the, his law after, as part of the Noahic covenant after Noah and his family has been saved on the ark. God reiterates what the cost of taking a life is. This is Genesis chapter 9, verses 5 and 6. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. The brothers are aware of their past actions. And they're aware of what the payment is for shed blood. Murderers get what's coming to them in the world that God created. So it should be somewhat shocking to us that Judah emerges and says, I'll be the pledge for his life. I'll be the one who is willing to be sold. I'm the one who's willing to be a substitution for my brother. Does that remind you of a descendant of Judah, perhaps? Joseph had to pay for his brother's sins in chapter 37. They were jealous. They wanted to get rid of him. And now in chapter 43, Judah is, in a sense, willing to pay for the sins of his brothers. So this plan to return was floated in the last chapter, and Jacob said, no way, you don't take Benjamin from me. So what will Jacob do now? This is the second point. Chapter 43, verses 11 through 15. Jacob throws himself and his family on God Almighty's mercy. Then their father Israel said to them, if it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags 
and carry a present down to the man, a little balm, a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise and go again to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. May he send back your older brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I'm bereaved of my children, I'm bereaved. So the men took this present. They took double the money with them and Benjamin. They arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. Jacob gives in to this plan, doing perhaps the unthinkable. He's willing to let Benjamin go. The whole weight of the text thus far has indicated this is not going to happen. Again, turn back to chapter 42. Just note what Jacob says, Israel says, in chapter 42, verses 36 through 38. And Jacob, their father, said to them, you've bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. And then verse 38. My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead. He's the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you'll bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. Those of us that are parents probably get this. I would far rather incur loads of, like, like all the way up even to death than watch my children go through anything. And so for Jacob, what he's saying is, my life is so bound up with my kids, if I lose another, I will die. And now, in our text today, he turns a 180. And what is the ground of his willingness to do this? Why is he willing to do this? He's not ultimately trusting in his sons, in Judah, to complete this plan. He's not ultimately trusting in how the man, Joseph, is going to respond. But he's ultimately trusting in God Almighty, the all-powerful and all-good God. The name God Almighty, El Shaddai, you see it there in the text, has shown up at several key moments in the patriarchs in Jacob's life. So we're going to take a little, uh, we're going to pull up the photo album here real fast on our road trip and remind ourselves of some things that we've already seen. So first, in Genesis 17, verse 1, this name, El Shaddai, God Almighty shows up when God appears to Abram and says, no longer will you be called Abram. I'm God Almighty. You're going to be called Abraham, father of nations. And in what context is he showing up as God Almighty? Abram's old, really old. His wife's not quite as old, but really old. How will old people whose bodies, the, the, you know, the author of Hebrews tells us that Abraham's body was as good as dead. How do they have kids? Only if the all-powerful God says, you're going to have a kid. So as God reveals himself as all-powerful, he's the God who makes babies come out of barren wombs. It was a call for Abram to have faith in God when it's impossible to have a child because nothing is impossible with God. He is God Almighty, the all-powerful. And they did have a child, Isaac. And then it is Isaac, who the second time we get this name in Genesis 28, verse three, Isaac blesses Jacob as Jacob is leaving to go seek a wife and flee from his brother's murderous intent. 
And Jacob, or I'm sorry, Isaac, blesses Jacob and tells him this name that was spoken over him before he was born. Who is going to prosper Jacob's way? God Almighty, the all-powerful. And then lastly, in Genesis 35, verse 11, God reveals himself to Jacob and says, I am El Shaddai, I am God Almighty. And like his grandfather before him, he changes his name from Jacob to Israel, one who strives or wrestles with God. He is the all-powerful God who for a decade plus has taken Jacob out and brought him back a greater nation. He's God Almighty, the all-powerful. So when Jacob here invokes the name of God Almighty in our text, he's doing the same thing. It didn't look possible to have a child in your 90s or 100s. And it is impossible unless God. It doesn't look possible for your child to find a spouse and become great when he's got to travel across the known world for it to happen. In fact, it's not possible. Here again, it doesn't look possible for them to get food without losing another brother. In fact, it is impossible, except with God Almighty. If we've been paying attention to the text, we see that God is always acting in accord with his promises. He says something will happen, it's gonna happen. Because he's powerful enough for Abraham, for Isaac, for Jacob, for Joseph, for Judah, for their brothers, for us. For us. It's not like different kinds of people back in Genesis. They're proto-saints, as it were. We're just got, we've just got more clarity about what this story is about and what it points towards. So, one more note that's going to be important later in the text. Jacob directly appeals to God's mercy, right? God, be merciful. Grant you mercy before the man in verse 14. Mercy is one particular aspect of God's power. Powerful enough to do good to those who don't deserve it or powerful enough to do good to those that deserve what's not good. We need to keep our eyes peeled for such mercy in this text. It might seem abstract to us, but if God really is God, then his mercy and his power aren't just like abstract in the heavens, in our text here and in our lives. It should show up. So we have to keep our eyes out. This is a sort of Psalm 88 kind of mindedness. Are you familiar with this Psalm? Psalm 88 is like the one Psalm uh, out of 150 Psalms that doesn't really end on a hopeful note. Kind of ends with the, the guy who wrote it, Keman, just like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna die. Everyone's fled for me. And yet his eyes in his hopelessness are still towards God, right? This is the same kind of thing going on. So what about for you? What about for me? Is God still good? Is he still powerful when it doesn't appear like the circumstances are aligning up with that? Are his promises still true when our own sin is plaguing us all of our days and the consequences of it? When disappointment encroaches on our lives, when evil befalls us, there's a temptation to take our eyes off God and put our eyes on our circumstances or ourselves. So we start to ask, can he still be good? Well, if he's still good, why isn't he powerful enough for this to stop? And the answer from every single itty bitty bit of scripture is no. No. He is still good. 
He is still powerful. Even if we haven't seen it just yet. We will. So the plan in Canaan has been agreed upon. The brothers depart for Egypt and what will await them? And what we find is mercy awaits them in a very tangible form. So the third point, Joseph starts laying a merciful trap of repentance for his brothers. Chapter 43, verses 17 through 34. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready for the men are to dine with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, it's because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we're brought in. He's going to assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and seize our donkeys. So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house and said, oh, my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food. When we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks and there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we brought it again with us. We have brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. He, the Lord of the house, replied, peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. And when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water, and they had washed their feet, and when he had given their donkeys fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon. For they heard that they should eat bread there. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present they had with them and bowed down to him on the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? They said, your servant, our father, as well. He's still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out, and controlling himself, he said, Serve the food. They served him by himself and them by themselves and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews for it is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another at amazement. In amazement, portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. And they drank and were merry with him. Remember Joseph's story and a few things Nathan reminded us of last week. He has largely, if not entirely, forgotten the bitterness of his father's house and his upbringing. We know this because he named his son Manasseh in Genesis 41, 51. Remember that? God has made me forget all of my hardship and made me forget all my father's house. Now his father's house is on his doorstep again. He is the one who predicted seven years, tears and fears. And he was used by God to get Egypt and the whole world ready to endure this hardship. And now his own personal hardship is here knocking on his doorstep. We have to get inside Joseph's mind here and not just view him as like this disinterested or somehow superhuman person who's not affected by any of this. 
that is a reminder of hardship and probably a temptation towards hatred and bitterness. So there's four things from this section of the text I want to note, and one in particular I want to land on. One, first, note the intense amount of detail about the banquet. Joseph observes them coming, doesn't come to them until later, then sits separately from both them and the Egyptians. He orders up all the brothers, oldest to youngest, and gives more food to his full brother, Benjamin. We should not see this as strictly, hey, really interesting this happened. It's not just proactive Joseph, but provident God who's having all of this lined up for the sake of what's going to happen in the next couple chapters. Second, note that there's still deception on display. We've seen a lot of deception in the lives of the patriarchs. The steward of the house appears to be in on this plan. Like other things in Genesis, we're not going to make a full judgment call on the ethics of the situation, but it does seem a little bit more in this situation, like what's going on with Joseph is, he's kind of given the brothers what they, what they wanted to some degree. They created this whole story of deception about how Joseph was dead. So in a sense, this is like ironic just deserts. Joseph is going to continue the deception. You wanted, you wanted to be deceived that I'm dead? I'll play along. Third, See what the expectation of the brothers is and how it turns. It goes from, here we are, on our way, to Joseph's house, doom and gloom, coming soon. But the expectation of that kind of like, we're going to be killed or we're going to be held captive, instead of needing to justify themselves, it's surprisingly upended in kind of the first major moment where things start to look up for them. And then we have to ask the question fourth, well, why is all of this happening? Is this just because of Joseph's plan? There's something we need to note here really intently. And the ESV does not, the, the translation that we have here does not capture it. And most modern English translations don't capture it either. What happens in Joseph's heart is translated as compassion is an extremely rare word in Genesis. It only shows up one other time in Genesis in this particular form. It's in verse 14. It's the word mercy. Jacob prayed and said, God Almighty, may he grant you mercy. And then just 16 verses later, the text says, I think translated correctly, there was mercy in Joseph's heart for his brothers. And it doesn't show, the word doesn't show up anywhere else in Genesis, all right? There's a, there's a derivative word that means kind of womb or like how a mother would care for somebody in her womb that's not the exact same. I think this has to be God and the author of Genesis, Moses, is saying, look at what happened back here with this prayer for mercy. Look at what happened in Joseph's heart. This is the answer. When Jacob asks for God Almighty to be merciful to him and his family, here it is on display. Not abstract up here, tangible in the situation. Jacob prayed for mercy, Joseph showed mercy. And I think too this is confirmed because the phrase lifted up his eyes and saw Benjamin. That phrase is also relatively unique. Where it shows up in Genesis, it's always in these providential moments where Something surprising is happening. Something, 
some kind of provision from God. Do a search sometime on lifted up eyes. I think the author is telling us this is a providential moment. Instead of Joseph perhaps reacting in a temptation towards bitterness, I think even more than perhaps he was predisposed towards being merciful to his brothers, he's getting like supercharged for more mercy. So where has your journey brought you? Kids, you're just starting out your journey. Where will God take you? What will he do? Teens, a whole bunch of you, teens and preteens, you're gonna go to camp here tomorrow, right? What will God do? How will he meet you? If you're single, if you're married, if you've been divorced, if you've been remarried, if you have kids, if your parents are alive, your parents have passed on, where will God lead you in months, years to come? If he is, as the text tells us, all good, all powerful, you're not forgotten and he has mercy intended for you, whatever your life circumstance, wherever you're going, whatever's happened. So in conclusion, we have to consider the providence of God in all of the patriarch's lives and particularly these three men. Jacob, has sojourned most of his life going to and from the promised land. Second born, received the birthright, sort of enslaved for 14 years in Lamech, his father-in-law's tent. And upon returning, he has numerous sons, all of whom do various things. And at the end of life, with wound upon wound to his soul, filled with regret, he's gonna tell us in a few chapters, God is redeeming his story. He doesn't even realize it yet. Joseph, who's in the wrong place in the wrong time in chapter 37 to be ambushed by his brothers, sold into slavery, lied about, sent to prison for years, forgotten another few years until the right moment when he's in the right place at the right time to have an audience with Pharaoh and help save the world so that years later he can see his brothers walking in. And Judah, who's in the right place at the right time to ironically suggest, perhaps in chapter 37, don't kill him, send him into slavery. He ends up in this situation where he's going to be in the place of his younger brother, redeemed to save his younger brother's life, offering himself instead. Do you see the providence of a great God ordering all these things, making sure all these things align? Don't think it is different for us in our lives. All of this is pointing towards one, the descendant of Judah, who offers himself in our place to save our lives from the consequences of sin, eternal death. Do you see how Jacob's life, Jacob's pain, his regrets, Joseph's life, Joseph's pain, his regrets, and Judah's life and pain, his regrets lead us to say, what man means for evil, God means for good. His providence stands over the story so that Jacob has two sons, one of whom saves the other, so that from that son will come the offspring of the woman back in Genesis 3.15, a redeemer, Jesus the Christ. Jesus, born as a second chance for all humanity and creation, a firstborn of a new resurrected creation, Born of God, of a woman, uniquely divine, uniquely human at the same time, lived a perfect life, that Jacob, Judah, 
Joseph, you, me, could not live and died in our place, dying a death we deserve and not staying dead, but rising, never to die again. Death doesn't have any more hold over him. Right now, Jesus, the king, is reigning in heaven, and someday he and heaven will return to earth. This is his story. And for all those that trust in that, turning from their sin and turning to him, they find that the kingdom of God is not 100 miles away, no matter how far you've walked. The kingdom of God is one step away because for all those who turn, they find that God has been pursuing them. There's no ladder to climb back up to to get to him. He came all the way down and he's here, present. His goodness and power is bent toward you, not against you. And if this is not your story and you turn to him, it becomes your story where Jesus in his death kills your sin and Jesus in his resurrection gives you new life, spiritual now, physical later, where you turn to him as treasure and you turn away from the trash of sin. And Jesus is also here in our text today. Jacob rejected, Joseph despised, Judah, fourth-born of second-loved wife, Jesus rejected, despised, forsaken, killed, raised, reigning for Jacob, for Joseph, for Judah, for you, for me. And that's what brings us to the table this morning. So if you're unable to come forward or you'd rather stay uh, just kind of in your chair and meditate, the ushers have prepackaged communion cups for you. This points towards a journey that we're on. We're on our way towards a meal with Joseph, with Judah, with Jacob, with all those at all times who have had faith in God. Our journey has an end. And as we partake in this communion, we remember that Jesus died, Jesus rose, Jesus is reigning. For all those who put their faith in him, we have a meal together now and a meal together then. If today you are here among us and you're not sure you're a Christian, you're pretty sure you're not, please do not take the group pressure of everybody getting up and coming forward as an invitation that you should just also do that too. Please just stay where you're at or consider praying. And then after the service, talk to us. We would love for this story to become your story. Similarly, if you're here this morning and there's particularly bitterness in your heart, especially towards other Christians in this assembly, like this church, please consider refraining from taking communion. This is meant to be a, a symbolic way of expressing our unity on our way to home. But don't just kind of sit there settled in that bitterness. By grace, ask God to help you resolve that. And if you're coming today, hiding in your sin, clinging to your sin more closely than you are to Jesus, you're just not willing to deal with it. Consider refraining. You should refrain. Paul has warnings for you. Please 
Seek to make that right. Confess that to someone. Confess it to God. And again, if today you're broken, you're messy, by grace you're turning to Jesus and finding he's just a foot away, this is a meal for us. Not for perfect people, but for those that realize they're sinners in need of grace. So I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians, the words of institution. Then after I'm done, you are free to come forward at any time and partake. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Come when you're ready.